When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. So that happened is sponsored by Texture, the app that gives you an all-access pass to the world's best magazines right on your phone or tablet. And now Texture is offering listeners a free trial when they go to texture.com slash happened. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash happened. So That Happened is also sponsored by MileIQ, the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try MileIQ for free today by texting HAPPENED to 31996. That's HAPPENED to 31996. This podcast contains explicit language. John Vayner, don't go. We're going to miss you forever. Well, actually, I was thinking I would remain in my basement apartment. Can we come over? Well, I, I don't know if I'll have you over, but maybe you could meet me for a glass of wine at Trattoria Alberto. I would love that. <laughs> I would love that, John Boehner. You have got the greatest attitude. I'm so glad you're not in Congress anymore. Why the hell would I move to Florida or Ohio? I... When my apartment's right between I, Pete's Diner and Trattoria, Alberta. I totally agree with you. <laughs> All I, my favorite shitheads live here. John Boehner, I know you don't think everyone's a shithead. You don't understand. Shithead is a Boehner term of endearment. W- would you consider me a shithead? Oh, I'll, I'll have to think about that. Now listen, I'm not trying to be an asshole. You're not. These are my uh, perquisities. I understand. You've given me a lot per- to think about. Per- perquisities, John Vayner? I'm not sure it's a word. You, you, you maybe probably meant proclivity. Per- prerequisites. <laughs> nice work, English majors. John Boehner. What, what did you major in, John Boehner? <laughs> Business. <laughs> of course. And is that how you, uh, how you became a bartender? Well, I'm going to get a little misty if we talk about <laughs> okay. this. Okay. But... No, that's okay. You can get a little misty. I was one of 12 children. Um, my, my father owned a bar and... I would sweep up every night. I'm I'm crying. Okay, okay. Well, John Boehner, I hope... <laughs> Are we good to go? John Boehner, I can't wait to talk to you again, but right now we got to move on. <laughs> I'm literally, literally crying. So that happened. Can you hear it? Do you hear that right there? Oh, yeah. This week... It's Christmas, and we're celebrating the holidays by talking about our favorite Christmas movies and adding a lot of silly economic and political wonkery. What do our Christmas entertainments teach us about our life and times? Let's find out. Meanwhile, in America, you can't have Christmas without also having a war on Christmas. So how did this year's war on Christmas go? Here to discuss everything from blood red Starbucks cups to the Lifetime Channel's quick shots of false Yuletide hope is comedy writer and reporter Kotla McGlynn. Finally, you know what the best gift we received this year was? A government agency that wasn't shot through with grotesque regulatory capture. Our pal Alexis Goldstein joins us to discuss what a mitzvah the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has been. I'm Jason Lincolns with the Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter and Arthur Delaney. And here's what happened first. Merry Christmas, everyone. Yay! This is the So That Happened podcast. We're coming to you live on Christmas because we love you so much. We're like, let's get up and do a podcast on Christmas Day. So here you go. Christmas is great. Presents. We love you. Stockings. Love uh, is good. Christmas tree. Love is all around. Holly berries. Don't let your cat eat them. Don't let your cat eat that holly. Or your dog eat the poinsettia. Lights. I am probably at home. I'm about to eat maybe some ham. Uh, sisters may be coming over. Oh, don't do that, man. It was don't good when ham. you said we were alive. 
Now we're in two places. You guys at once. are at my house. We're all about to eat ham. It's wonderful. Not gonna eat ham. Um, enough trope. We are gonna talk about sort of like Christmas this time out. This time out, uh, and we're gonna combine like two of our favorite things: Christmas and uh, Zach's hang-ups about the economy, <laughs> which is perfect. Yeah, perfect. Marks and recreation. So, I mean, we we collectively watched a bunch of uh, Christmas movies, which movies, which at least which we decided were about Christmas. And, and you can tell them which movies them. we decided we would watch this year. So the movies we decided to watch were It's a Wonderful Life, the 1946 Frank Capra classic, um, the Ernst Lubitsch, I believe, 1940 classic Shop Around the Corner, Die Hard from like 1987, and then Irving Berlin's White Christmas from 1952. Right. These are all movies that, for whatever reason, are associated with Christmas. Um, I think... Well, I mean, with White Christmas, it's because they put the word Christmas in the title. That's correct. They all have some level of political undertones or, or overt statements about how the world is ordered and ought to be ordered. Uh, and yet they all make you feel really good, even though their um, ideological points are not necessarily in harmony with one another. All right. Arthur, which movie would you like to hear us talk about first? Let's talk about Die Hard. Okay. And can I say why? Yes. Because I really like how Alan Rickman is in both Die Hard and Love Actually, uh, the most controversial Christmas movie of all time. Perhaps playing the same character. It's just funny. (laughs) Alan Rickman? (laughs) I love that. He's awesome. He's so good in Die Hard. Merry Christmas. He's great. He's great in Die Hard. I want to say that, okay, rewatching Die Hard, one of the first things that reminded me is that it is a real artifact from this era in American life where we all had this kind of pressing anxiety that we were about to get our our lunch eaten by the Japanese because the Japanese economy was going great guns. This movie sets up a sort of idea that Japanese businessmen have already sort of assimilated Americans into their way of doing things. And this is And are working with German terrorists. Right. German terrorists. Yes, yeah, the movie is working with German terrorists. Yeah. The Japanese are not. But but it's this it's this weird kind of strange artifact. And what's what's interesting is that we've had these kind of xenophobic fears before, but perhaps it was our xenophobia with the Japanese that was the most benign, probably because we as capitalists respected the way they're beating us. That or or because the United States had actually defeated Japan only like a few decades prior in a major war. Um, but but the xenophobia of the movie is very real. And I think I think it is. Uh, I mean, it's clearly extremely violent, macho right wing propaganda. And for all of that, I love it. I think now, it's totally. There, I think some, it's totally great. You guys, there's some dissonance between the the two points you just made. There's you're saying the xenophobia is real, but Jason's acknowledging the xenophobia, but saying it's benign. It's a little bit. It's a nice agree, guy. I agree with xenophobia. Jason. It's not like an actual bad guy. I don't think it's they're they're trying to play it off our victory in World War II. I think they're just going for some bad guys who aren't really that bad. So don't worry, everybody. They, Merry Christmas. They sort of specifically move center of the action in California for a reason, which is to say that California and California liberals uh, are, are the sort of people that would uh, sync up with our economic conquerors to build a new life in Hollyweird. And this is a weird period of time where a movie that, as, as Zach suggests, was very macho, perhaps a little right wing, could still associate a New York police officer with good American homespun values. I'll also point out that there's some amazing race stuff in the movie. Very Let's, interesting. Reginald Val Johnson plays a beat cop that comes to the aid of Bruce Willis. And surprisingly, this movie valorizes the fact that this black cop feels bad that he ever shot someone with his gun, which is crazy. And the movie redeems this black cop at the end by giving him a chance to shoot his gun. And what's crazy is he shoots a guy who we'd always assumed was already dead. Like they literally used the horror movie jump scare for the specific purpose of giving this black cop his moment of redemption. The moment of redemption being, I feel comfortable with guns again. What's interesting though, is that there, there's, there's a class element to the movie too, because, because the, the, the good cop, black cop and the good cop, white cop, Bruce Willis, um, 
are are sort of are sort of low on the on on, on in the hierarchy of, of the police. They keep getting overruled and ignored by police leaders. Elites keep telling them, "No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong." They get, they keep getting ignored, and they keep keep having to scrape it together as these working class guys who are just working with their smarts and their muscles to make it happen. So there there is an underdog class struggle that's that's reflected in the movie as well. Um, that said, I I think it's it's mostly just sort of like. Uh, you know, a, an opportunity for people to um, bathe in in the fun of 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 macho violence. And there's no Jesus in it at all. <laughs> there's True. a Christmas party. There's just a, a Christmas, Christmas party, party, and that's right. how it gets classified as a Christmas movie. Thanks, okay. Alan Rickman. So that's Die Hard. What movie do you want us to talk about next? Arthur Delaney. No, let's let uh, Zach choose. I chose Die Hard. Okay, you choose. Let's, let's keep this on the accessible track, and we'll do the weird ones later. Uh, I want to do It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. Um, I, I th- this is a classic movie. Full communism, right? So, actually, no. I think it's a pay into Ooh. capitalism. Uh, oh, boy. But, here we go. But the, the values of the film are, are values that are now associated with, with the anti-capitalist left in the United States, which I think shows how much our, our sort of understanding of markets and of, of, of politics has changed since the 1940s. I mean, if you haven't seen it, It's a Wonderful Life, you should see it. It's arguably the best movie ever made. I think it's probably my favorite movie. Is it fun to watch? Yeah, it's really fun. It's, it's about this, this guy, George Bailey's uh, path through life. He's played by Jimmy Stewart. And uh, basically through a series of terrible accidents, yeah. he ends up running the family savings and loan business. Legitimately funny in places, and small characters have really, really nice moments. It's just an absolutely incredible movie. But he hates, he, he doesn't really like running the family savings and loan, but this, this, the family savings and loan turns. He out wants to, to be, see the world. He wants to invent, take, have adventures. Right, but the family savings and loan turns out to be the only force in his small town that keeps the community together against and protects it from the predations of the evil banker, Mister Potter. And Mister Potter is sort of like a stand-in for, uh, say, you know, Jamie Dimon, Robert Rubin, whatever giant, you know, banker who doesn't care about communities. You want to, you boogeyman, you want to come up with. Um, and and so essentially, the, the movie details this guy's sort of confrontation with meaningless and his un- inability to escape this town, and then also the fact that the town actually really loves him for for protecting them. Perhaps from he even needs guy. him. Yeah, and that, that he's he's essential. So it, it is it is a story about about the greatness of small things and about the greatness of, of it, it, it valorizes small work, small you know just small work. You know, working at a bank is not is not glorious labor if you're working for a small savings and loan doing mortgages, right? Um, but I think it I think it's a fundamentally capitalist movie because it shows that the, the hero is a banker. He's a guy who works for a bank making mortgage loans so that people in their community can have mortgages. It doesn't say destroy banking institutions. It doesn't say that capital and finance cannot be harnessed for the power of good. It says you have to be very careful about it being harnessed for the power of evil, and the bad guy is, is Mr. Potter. So is, is, in, in a way, is it like the Lego movie where it's sort of masquerading as a, against big business, but really the core message is that you should buy Legos? No, the, the core message is that you should be really good to your neighbors and invest in institutions that, uh, that, that, that promote uh, togetherness and, uh, and community. It's the same thing I just said. <laughs> no, <laughs> investing in institutions like George Bailey saving is, George Bailey basically runs affording, affordable housing programs through his savings and loan. The, the Lego movie says, it says buy Legos, right? Right, yeah, basically. <laughs> I think those are different values. I will choose to shop around the corner. To Love talk this about. movie. This Love is it. a really great movie. Have you seen the movie? No. Okay, have you seen You Got Mail? Yes. Because you're required to. We're all AOL employees. <laughs> and so You Got Mail is our touchstone movie. We all love that movie. Um, but so Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan, who is a pip and probably the most undersung of the female actresses that Jimmy Stewart ever did a bunch of movies yeah, together she's with. fabulous in this movie. So this movie takes place in Budapest and then forgets to incorporate anything having to do with Budapest. Suddenly starts um, to look like New York. Yeah, suddenly it's, <laughs> it's like in name only. Um, and I have to say, I was surprised by how uh, many interesting class conscious moments there were in this movie. Let's lay out the plot for people real quick. Yeah. I don't think this is as well known as It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, so, so essentially, um, Jimmy Stewart and uh, and Mark Sullivan are uh, they work together in the same the same sort of gift shop. Yes, and they can't stand each other in person. Right, but they're both clearly hopelessly in love with their pen pals, who they've been corresponding with through through the classified section of the newspaper. Remember newspapers? And uh, remember pen pals? Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't take a you know you don't have to be like you know uh, Sherlock Holmes to figure out that it, they're they're actually corresponding with each other. Right. And so they fall in love. 
but essentially, that love story is a vehicle for a whole lot of stories about the Depression. Yes. Um, so this store, which is the Matashek family store, is not doing well. Um, uh, the, the, the owner, Hugo Matashek, nevertheless insists on uh, hiring a bunch of people, more people than you could possibly need to run a store that's not doing any business, trying his best to keep uh, that his role as job creator of the community going. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually hires Clara, Margaret Sullivan's character, uh, against uh, Jimmy Stewart's uh, advice because they can't possibly fit another person into the store. Um, Matashek, uh, uh, in, in, in sort of like the, the third act of the movie, um, comes to comes to believe his wife has been cheating on him. He's sunk a bunch of money into finding that out, and it breaks his heart, and he he tries to commit suicide. Uh, by this point, his his spiral down has led him to fire Jimmy Stewart's character. Uh, what ends up happening is while he's convalescing, Jimmy Stewart comes back to run the business, and he makes the business uh, successful again. And the sort of parallel is is that as he learns to let go of his uh, ill temperament toward Clara, and the and as Clara learns to let go of her ill temperament toward him. They become more successful and their business becomes more successful as a result of their... That's the parallel here. So love is profitable. And I found myself... In a sense. <laughs> here, here, here's here, one moment that really stuck out at me is uh, at the beginning, uh, Margaret Sullivan's character had just been, has just lost a job. Oh, sorry. No, sorry. Forgive me. Uh, Jimmy Stewart's just lost, lost his job and he's walking through the store saying goodbye to people and he says goodbye to, to Clara last and they've been fighting this whole time and Clara says, I know we've been fighting but whenever, whenever someone loses a job, it's terrible. You wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. And like, I thought to myself, it's like, yeah, when the economy crashed in my lifetime, I went from being a person who was like, hair trigger on fire that guy, they fucked up, to being like, no, no, man, don't try to work things out because that person has to feed himself, clothe himself, buy shelter, maybe feed a family. You can feel the despair of of the downturn in the film. And yet, and yet, when um, when uh, when Ferenc Vadash loses his job, still still based this is based on a Hungarian play for nothing right? more for being an obsequious dick, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say, I didn't feel bad when he lost his job. After the movie primed me to make me conscious of that, it kind of betrayed me a little bit by, oh, wait, wait, by wait, making wait. Is, it okay is it, isn't for him this, to... Isn't this the guy who was cheating on uh, on the, the owner's... or sleeping with the owner's wife? Yes, yeah. yes, but... You, you should lose your job for sleep, sleeping with your boss's wife. But you, said, you said earlier <laughs> you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. Yeah, and he is your worst enemy, right? Yeah, there so, he is, yeah. so I guess that makes it fair. And it really does... You, they do celebrate that. I mean, I, one of the most touching moments of the film, I think, is when the, the business owner, who is now single... Uh, ends up uh, sort of sort of going to Christmas dinner with uh, a kind of orphan kid who's he's he's not really orphan but he's he's been sent yes, to the big the city to, yeah. uh, to to figure something out and they and they they don't know what to do for Christmas and and the movie isn't it's not overly optimistic it doesn't say everything's going to be all right because you don't really know how the shop is going to turn out at the end and you know it, it, this this guy's relationship has been destroyed Jimmy Stewart is is in love with a woman so that that's cool I guess but it do, it doesn't tell you that everything's going to be be all right it tells you that the world is really hard and that without with, without love and with, without finding ways to, to connect with people, there is, you, know, you may not make it through the depression with love, but you will not make it through without it. All right. That leaves white Christmas. Yes, and, and I think we had a little argument yesterday. I don't like Christmas this movie. Eve, <laughs> about, about whether or not, who, who, was, who it was that actually put white Christmas on this list of movies to watch. And you didn't like white Christmas at all. No. I love white Christmas. I watch it every year. I think it's fantastic. I just don't think it's a very well executed movie. Um, what really? Yeah, I think I think the script is kind of under underwritten. You have like some of the greatest dancers that ever graced the movie stage. Yeah, because we're great doing actors. some of their greatest dancing. You have Rosemary Clooney and Bing Crosby singing perfectly. You don't think this movie was singing, well executed? Singing Irving Berlin songs, which are really well written. I think I think the script is just character wise, it's just really underdeveloped. But it's interesting. It takes place after World War II. It is about some some you know post GI guys who are who are these. Great, have this great song and dance routine, and they meet these two ladies who have their own great song and dance routine, and they team up to throw a sort of save the save the farm kind of show for for their old general, for, for their old general, right? Um, and and it, who permitted them to sing and dance across the French uh, front lines right. rather than fighting? So you could understand why they would like this general. It'd be like, hey, we just we just do soft shoe routines where everyone dies in Verdun. We have it made. So I, I didn't. <laughs> is this movie about when America was great? 
It's it's sort of. I mean, it's it's kind of yeah. it's kind of about. I mean, it's look. from 1954, which I believe is generally regarded as great. Great. Among the people who want America to be great again. Great, great for great time for white people, essentially. There's actually a song in the show uh, in which um, the characters uh, sing about how much they love minstrel show- shows. And yeah. it's a moment where they could have steered into like full on racism. Like a lot of musicals that were written in the early part of the 20th century, like Babes in Arms, actually did. Scenes have since been cut to make things more palatable mm-hmm. for the but but they actually talk about minstrel shows and I remember the first time I saw it I was like oh wait what am I about to see am I about to see full on blackface on this stage because I may have to hate this this movie um, but it wasn't there's also a number of the show called choreography in which Danny Kay uh, really really lampoons uh, what's happening in musical theater how we're in this transition between like song and dance blah 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 put on a show to like fancy Bob Fosse style, moody, sort of esoteric and avant-garde choreography. Mm. Um, so it is, it is Arthur, uh, a very specific uh, point of view that's centered in the 1950s, centered in Make America Great Again, at, at a time which you could start to foresee um, values starting to shift. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's very interesting in that regard. Um, I think it's a fun-ass movie, though. So, Arthur, have we convinced you to watch one of these movies today? Yeah. And if so, which one? I will watch uh, The Shop Around the Corner. All right, that's good. It's a great movie. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. Everybody, in this day and age, we're not just readers of any one thing. We're readers that like to dive down deep into topics and get full spectrum coverage of the stories that matter the most to us. But it's not always easy to get a breadth of perspective on a trending topic. It's harder still to get it on demand. Fortunately, now there's Texture, the smartphone app that lets you read your favorite magazines anytime, anywhere. And now Texture has some great new features that make it the best reading experience around. If you want premium content but don't want to waste your time finding it, Texture is the best way to bring magazines right from the newsstands to your pocket. You can browse hundreds of magazines, pick the articles that interest you the most. And now, Texture's editorial team will recommend stories for you every day. Plus, their curated collections let you dive deeper into topics. Sign up for Texture right now, and in mere seconds, you'll gain insider access to the very best reads, plus exclusive content. With full access to the top magazines across just about every interest, Texture is the one present you'll want to open again and again. And the best part, Texture is offering listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash happened. Even better, give Texture as a gift between now and December 31st. Think about that. You'll gain unrestricted access to the world's best magazines, from back issues to the ones on the stands. Order this fantastic gift for you or a loved one before December 31st and try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash happened. Hi, we're back. And guess what, everyone? I bought you something for Christmas. Or I didn't buy it. I just got it. I obtained it. I obtained it. And it is some key information that maybe you'll want to know about your Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and which we are here to hopefully give you some helpful information about. Joining me, as always, is Zach Carter. The best senior political economy reporter in the country. He is the best senior. Maybe you might be the only. That's the joke. Okay. (laughs) Good, good. Number one ranked. <laughs> Number one ranked. And and also chuckling in dismay is our good friend Alexis Goldstein from Americans for Financial Reform. Hey guys. What's, uh, your, what's your title at, at AFR? Senior Policy Analyst. Man, it seems like AKA Bank Dork. <laughs> So we've talked about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau before, and I've struggled with the acronym before. It's CFPB. There's just a lot of letters. letters. The catchy, catchy name. Yeah, it's really, really quite catchy. They're actually right behind us uh, here in Washington, D.C. They are Elizabeth Warren's brainchild. Uh, They are also a very young agency. And as we've said before... The benefit of being young, a young regulatory agency in Washington, D.C., is uh, you're still filled with that vigorous hot blood that keeps you from being captured by special interests. You actually do your job. 
Yeah, she actually did her job. Not <laughs> and, like, and the, the not proof like, is in the pudding. Like they have returned over eleven point two billion dollars to date to over twenty five million Americans due to enforcement actions, where you know companies did everything from giving people products that they never asked for on their credit card, like you know identity theft protection or things, or straight up just ripping them off with predatory loans to students of for profit colleges. Yeah, you have a government agency that actually works, and this is why so many people don't like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they're, they're at the nexus of this weird spot where where Wall Street banks hate them, small banks hate them, debt collectors hate them, payday lenders hate them. So everybody who is doing anything in finance Bad. is ta- is always targeting the CFPB because the CFPB is always telling them, "Hey, that money that you stole from those people, you, you have to give, give it, it back, back. <laughs> and then great. you have to pay a fine." <laughs> I think I think people should fight petty lenders in the actual streets, but that's just me. I'm a violent man. Um, <laughs> I would love to fight a petty lender in the street. Come and come at me, petty lender bros. Um, but <laughs> but at any rate, at any rate, we want to talk about um, we want to talk about uh, the the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and we've already kind of like you've already kind of uh, gotten us the top line that they've been saving people money. How, what mechanisms, how, how are they actually uh, saving people money? So they have enforcement authority over certain financial institutions. They can in, uh, do enforcement actions against debt collectors, for example. They can do enforcement actions against payday lenders. They did one, um, I think, last year against Ace Cash Express, which is one of the payday lenders that we have in Washington, D.C., because they actually had embedded in their manual for training associates, how to trap people in a cycle of debt. And they had a little diagram that was just a circle that, you know, had no end, a snake eating its tail sort of a circle about, you know, give them the first loan, make sure they roll it over and make sure they roll over the next one. Um, And so they have lawyers that can go and collect evidence and prosecute these people. They also have a complaint database, which is if, you know, I don't know if this has ever happened to you guys, but sometimes my credit card company or my bank company will charge me a late fee, even though I actually paid like right on time. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll reorder the payment so they make sure that I get the $20 fee. Um, So if you call your bank and they don't, you know, help you, you can actually file a complaint with the CFPB and they will contact the bank on your behalf and try to sort it out and get you a resolution and track it all. And you can also, if you want, it's not required, share your story with everyone else. And so the complaint database is now this sort of source where you can actually go and look up a financial company and see if other people have complained about them, if they've chosen to, you know, disclose their story and see what other people have said. And so you can actually make sure, first of all, it's a great mechanism for you to, you know, if you ever get a late fee and you dispute it and they don't resolve it, get some help, but also just see, try to avoid problems from other, you know, financial companies that how, may be kind of well, shady. How well vetted are these complaints in this complaint database? It's not like a wild west. No, they vet them. them and they take out all personal identifying information, right? It's all anonymized. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, you can't just sort of go in and just make stuff up. Um, they obviously go and then contact the company and try to verify what's actually oh, that's described. Really, that's really, really, really cool. It's, yeah. it's 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 a really simple thing, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't sound super complicated, but believe it or not, like regulators just didn't do this before the financial crisis. And and I mean, you don't you don't need a lawyer to like go after the bank. You can just call the CFPB and they will do it and they will not charge you anything. It is it is an it's an amazing just just way for like evidence of government actually functioning well, which yeah. I think is another reason why the Republican Party is always so angry with it. And what it. I'm talking about is just consumerfinance.gov slash complaint. And there's a hotline too, but I don't know the number. <laughs> Sorry. Awesome. So in addition to complaints, in addition to enforcement, they can also write rules to try to right. prevent problems in the first place. And I think there's maybe two or three really important rules that are sort of in the works. One of them is about payday lending. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're not familiar, payday lenders uh, take money, sort of you go, you get a loan, they hook themselves up to your paycheck so they automatically can deduct money from it and usually what happens is the interest rates are so high that you just have to take your two-week payday loan and roll it over and so most people roll over payday loans multiple times and so the interest rate ends up being in the hundreds of percent right right it's it's so high basically you have to take out another payday loan to pay off your first payday yes. loan. right that's effectively what's going on so the cfpb is essentially proposed to do a rule that would make sure that people actually have the ability to repay a payday loan before a payday lender can uh, give you one. 
So that's sort of in flux, but the payday industry is fighting it tooth and nail. That's one thing they're doing. Well, right, because the payday industry and loan industry are the worst Americans, among the worst <laughs> It's They have a lot of competition on Wall Street, but yes. They, well, yeah, their whole, like, industry. the way that they lobby against this rule is they say, hey, if we're not here, people are going to go to a loan shark and break your leg. But actually, there have been enforcement actions by, like, the DOJ and state attorneys general against loan sharks who charge lower rates than payday lenders. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't really know. Um, another thing they're working on is in your cell phone contract, in a lot of your bank contracts, there's this like fine print that essentially says that if your bank screws you, you can't sue them in a court of law. You have to go to what's called an arbitrator, which is a private judge that the company hires. And usually the the arbitrator wants to get more business. So they tend to rule in favor of the company. And it's really expensive. It's not transparent. It's really hard to appeal. And if your bank screws you. And as soon as you hear about it, you think. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Think, well, this is fucking stupid. Of well, course, this get, is terrible. If you get ripped off for 20 bucks, you're not going to spend $1,000 to hire a private lawyer to go to arbitration. And so these these this fine print also bans class actions. So you can't join with other people to sue your bank because you all got ripped off for 20 bucks. You basically just have to suck it up. So the CFPB is also did a three-year-long study, found that there's a lot of problems with these, um, sort of fi this fine print, and is also proposing a rule on forced arbitration, which would ban... Ban, it, it's sort of weird. They would ban the ban on class action. So basically, you could <laughs> sue in a class action if you were ripped off by your bank and so were, you know, a hundred other people. So that's another thing the CFPB is working on that the Chamber of Commerce really, really doesn't like and has made its, I think, number one priority at the moment to try to kill. U.S. Chamber of Commerce being nominally a group that represents business. Uh, but is actually just a giant lobbying group that works on behalf of the Republican Party. The CFPB not only can help you when, you know, your your financial firm rips you off, but they're trying to make sure that your financial firm doesn't rip you off in the future. <laughs> How long before this all comes crashing down? <laughs> How long before this all ends? I mean, Congress has been trying to turn the CFPB into a commission. And what that means is right now it's run by a single person, a single director named Richard Cordray, and they want to turn it into um, a five-member commission, which would mean either so three Republicans a, and two Democrats right. or the other way around. So there's always a couple of people on the commission who are just like, nah, I think it's cool these people are getting ripped yeah. off. Basically. So yeah. we'll see what happens with that. Um, but there are a lot of other ways they're trying to curtail the CFPB. Right now, the CFPB gets its money uh, independent of the appropriations process, and they want to force them to have to go hat in hand and beg Congress for money and individually uh, give it funding. So that would be another way that they I mean, would they, try. Right. They can not only gut the funding, they can also make funding contingent on, they can hold it, hold it hostage, basically. Like, hey, if you guys are going after American Express again, you're not getting your, your annual you know, funding next year. And, and that can be a, a really effective way for Congress to intimidate regulators and keep them from doing their jobs. Um, so, but right now, their money comes as, as a guaranteed percentage of the Federal Reserve's budget. So Congress can't directly interfere, which is they one They hate that. Oh, do they hate that? Yeah, well, you know. Some of them. Some of them. <laughs> uh, uh, Congress, you can make the argument, is also suffers from a bit of the regulatory capture themselves. Oh, I mean, the whole the whole financial services committee is basically a fundraising committee where people go in order to raise money from banks by doing little favors for them, like beating up the CFPB. Uh, but so far, the CFPB has, has has hung in there. They haven't been they haven't been screwed yet. Well, uh, I think the bottom line is uh, the CFPB is standing by people, and people should do their best to stand by them. And hopefully this arrangement where you're actually protected from the asshole bottom-feeding scum of the world 
uh, will persist maybe a few months longer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping on years. <clears throat> yeah. Hoping for years. Yeah, we'll go with years. Hey, everybody. From appointments with clients, meetings, errands, unless you're chained to your desk all day, then you're one of the 60 million Americans who drives for work. And driving for work means you track your mileage. It's a painstaking and often time-consuming task that usually involves scribbling notes and making tedious calculations. And sometimes, when you get off the road, you just want to take a break. And that leads you to guesstimate things. That could reduce your mileage reimbursements, the ones you deserve, by as much as 20% less than what you could be claiming. Mile IQ is the solution you've been looking for. Mile IQ is the number one mileage tracker app, and it's trusted by hundreds of thousands of Americans. It's the only mileage tracker that detects, logs, and calculates your drives for you automatically, which means no more scribbles. Mile IQ is easy to use, and it keeps all of your drives securely stored in the cloud. If you drive for work and you're not counting every single mile, then you're burning money every time you take a drive. In fact, the average Mile IQ user logs $547 a month in drives. And Mile IQ does all that work. You just install it and it runs in the background recording your trips. It's your calculator and your memory, and its easy interface is a breeze to use, letting you focus on what's important. MileIQ is one of the few apps in the App Store that actually makes you money. Not only would save you money by reducing human error, the level of organization it's going to bring to your life is going to set you apart from everyone still jotting mileage on post-it notes. It's no wonder that so many people use MileIQ, and it's not a surprise that the app has earned a bevy of five-star ratings at both the Google Play and iOS iTunes app stores. So stop wasting your time manually tracking your miles. Stop losing money you could be claiming. Try Mile IQ for free today by texting HAPPEN to 31996. That's happened to 31996. Hey, so it wouldn't be Christmas without... Something that wasn't related to Christmas. <laughs> monetary policy. So we're going to talk about monetary policy. This is something, something that uh, we wanted ho, to get ho, to. Oh, ho, interest rates. We wanted to get to last week, but we did not have time in our podcast. But we're going to talk about monetary policy and uh, Janet Yellen's decision to do something that has not been done in, I can't remember the last time we did this. We raised interest rates. I, or had them above zero. Or had all. them above yeah, zero. Been since like 2008. By a quarter mm-hmm. of a point. So there are two minds on the matter. <laughs> happen to be sitting right here. Um, I'm one of those minds. I'm Zach Carter. Right. And Arthur Delaney, obviously the other mind. Yeah. So Fed raises interest rate, good or bad. I'm John McLaughlining this. Go. Good. Bad. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing, um, you know, the, the Fed is always trying, the, 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 the secretive overlords of, of the American economy um, are always trying to balance two different objectives, keeping unemployment low and keeping inflation modest. You know, a little bit of inflation is really fine to grease the wheels of the economy. You don't want to have people moving out cash in wheelbarrows. That's right. bad. 2% um, is the target rate of inflation yes. that the Fed tries to And hit. so, the, you know, the Fed has had rates uh, at essentially zero for, for several years now. That's really unusual policy. And I think people at the Fed just are kind of tired of it and want to get out of that situation. So that if something goes wrong in the economy, they have a tool they can go to, like cutting interest rates. The trouble is, not only are we not seeing inflation, of 2%, we're not seeing wage growth, which would be a precursor to inflation, because the, the way the inflationary sort of circle works is, as the economy gets better, workers have more bargaining power with their employers, they're able to demand higher wages, and then eventually they demand so much that, that employers have no choice but to raise prices in order to pay their workers the higher wages, and then you start seeing inflation happen. So we're not seeing inflation, we're not seeing a lot of wage growth, we know that the labor force participation rate is still is still relatively low, even though the unemployment rate is pretty low. I think we still have a weak economy, and for the Fed to to start raising rates now and send a signal that it wants to raise them by a full three percentage points over the next three years, I think suggests that they're just going to needlessly make the economy worse for for the next year or so, and uh, and that's that's going to have consequences for working people. But the signal they're sending is that while they might think that would be ideal to raise interest rates by that amount, they're going to stop and pause if it's not working as they go along. So they did 0.25 of a percentage point, and they feathered the bed for this by telling everyone for months that this was probably the plan, 
And so the expectation that it would happen had already been built in to people's business decision-making, and no crisis happened. And the, and the argument that I've read that I think is uh, interesting and persuasive for why this could be a good thing is that what is the Fed going to do if interest rates are zero when the next recession starts? I would assume they would just order everyone to pack up their things and move to another country. They would they would do quantitative easing, which is what they did this mm-hmm. this time around. They would start buying up bonds and effectively send interest rates negative. But but um, don't are, is quantitative easing the and, Fed does and how it, and, and what it works is not, you know that's a, a sort of experimental thing that yes they did for the past several years, but isn't necessarily as well understood. There, as interest rates, the, there are there are problems with. I think it is pretty well understood. I think that the the, the problem with relying entirely on the Fed to, to stimulate the economy is that the Fed works by monetary policy works through through banking intermediaries. So if banks decide to do dumb things with the cheap money they're getting from the Fed, essentially, um, then then that can cause bad things to happen. You know, you could you could have uh, a lot of the money just sort of floating around in highly leveraged derivatives trades, for instance, uh, instead of. Tinkering, you know, filtering out to the broader economy in, in the form of lending because the broader economy is still weak. I mean, we, we haven't done a good job of, of, I mean, Ben Bernanke said this when he left the Fed. He said, basically, Congress needs to do more to spend more money, that fiscal policy needs to play a bigger role in this. But that said, when there's nobody else around to help keep, when, when Congress is, is just sort of abdicating its responsibility to help people, uh, you know, the Fed's all you got. And the economy, the, the problem is the economy is already still weak. And by raising the rates, you, you're just going to make it worse. Uh, and and it is true that there's not a policy tool. There aren't as many policy tools available in the next crisis if it, if it comes. Uh, but but we're also in a bad time right now. It's it's still an unusually bad economic period. But there's not there's definitely not going to be another stimulus bill the next time unemployment starts going up. There will be the the fiscal cushion of various programs like food stamps and unemployment that just automatically start spending more money. But the Fed is like stuck in a corner at zero interest. And I, I, it just seems like if, if they can, uh, without being too upsetting to the markets, which it seems like they're successful at so far, if they can get away from zero, that that's normal and, and maybe good. But we're not I, that far away from zero. It's just a quarter of a percentage. Right, well, they were, they're trying to march farther away. So to be clear for our listeners, most economists uh, agree with Arthur on this one. Uh, but uh, there's a, a significant wing of liberal economists that agree with me. Uh, so, you know, if, if you think Arthur is persuasive, there are a whole lot of people who, you know, study money numbers who agree with you. If you think that I'm persuasive, there are a whole lot of people who I agree with a lot more often who agree with you. That was you just perp- that was you muddied the waters like crazy just there. I just have one. <laughs> I just have. <laughs> I just have one. Qu- so some economists agree with Arthur, but the economists you like agree with you. Okay, Correct. I mean that's same that's the same situation I have going on in my life. Um, one last question: um, uh, Is the Federal Reserve the agency that is ultimately tasked with making the decision uh, whether we as a nation just pack it in and move on? What? <laughs> like, if if nothing were, if nothing's working, which agency is the government agency that announces to the, to the country? Well, we've had a good run, America. Um, get your things. Let's look. There is no. We're such, entering a global there no draft. Such, there is no. Hopefully, such Mauritania will draft me as as their citizen. You know, there's no such agency. You're just trolling us, Jason. But you mean like the, the guy, <laughs> the guy in Wall E, who's just like, sorry, everybody. Gotta go, and he like is a video recording on the spaceship. <laughs> right. Yeah. We don't actually have that. That's just in Wall E. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the Fed is the most powerful economic institution in the world, though, and its decisions do have have major impacts. Aside from changing the sort of bargaining position between workers and and their employers, I mean, raising interest rates will have have an effect on how your savings account works and how your credit cards work. I mean, you'll get more interest on your on your bank accounts, but you'll also have a higher interest rate on your credit cards and on your mortgages. The prime rate on mortgage lending already went up as is, a result of this. Is pandemic. there a cabin in the woods situation with the Fed? The Fed is portrayed as like this mysterious right, and, and like a cult. So I'm asking if there's a cabin in the woods situation. I just, with the, I, Fed. I, the, the Fed <clears throat> is, is, does the Fed sacrifice young teenagers to ancient bloodthirsty gods on a regular basis so that they do not have to devour the souls of the world entirely. The Federal Reserve Chairman is appointed by the President. 
So just keep that in mind. Yeah. It's not totally unaccountable. The president can take the federal. I'm government. not hearing a no. I'm not hearing a no. You're you're not I denying the possibility of a cabin in the woods situation involving the Fed. There's a there's a really good book on the Fed for people who are interested called um, The Secrets of the Temple. It's from 1980s and it's by a guy named Bill Greider who used to write for Rolling Stone, now writes for the Nation. Yeah. He's written a couple uh, books on the Fed. Yeah. One of which I have read. Secrets of the Temple is the real classic. It's a little outdated because the Fed's not quite as secretive as it was in 1987, but it does show you how a bunch of you know economists and, and people who are close there, to bankers there, make these decisions. There is a Federal Reserve uh, nominee chairman, I think, named Neil Kashkari, who actually did have a cabin in the woods. <laughs> yes, he's uh, going to be the Fed. 100% true. Yeah, he, 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 he invited the uh, Washington <laughs> Post to take pictures of him chopping wood. Yep. So to answer your question, yes. <laughs> yes. It's Neil we Kashkari's con- cabin. We are confirming there is a cabin in the woods. Neil Kashkari built it. Do not go into Neil Kashkari's cabin under any circumstances. He has an axe. <laughs> yeah. Merry Christmas, Cthulhu. Hey guys, we'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes. Subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. Everybody, we're back, and I am very glad to be with Arthur Delaney, and I'm extra special glad to have on the phone with us from New York City, Katla McGlynn. You can follow her work at places like New York Magazine's Vulture.com and uh, Vanity Fair and Split Cider and other places where fine, funny things are written. Katla, how are you? I am great. Merry Christmas, Jason and Merry- Arthur. Merry Christmas. Tell me if I have this wrong, but our sort of thesis about the war on Christmas is that Christmas is so vastly popular a holiday that to suggest that anyone's plausibly declaring war on it is kooky, cuckoo bananas. And for that matter, Christmas is such a big old bully holiday that actually could stand to have its wings clipped a little bit. Yeah, exactly. It feels like every year there are people that think that for some reason, that fact that people are saying happy holidays is like an offensive act. (laughs) But it's like Christmas is so ubiquitous that like, you don't really have to call it out to every single person that you see. Yeah, and it's gross. Christmas is kind of getting gross. So what you guys uh, are doing is saying that the war on Christmas is phony, but you're simultaneously actually waging war on Christmas. Yeah, that's right. Like yeah, that. exactly. We're like the the dudes in the hunt for red October. <laughs> like we're in a submarine. <laughs> we're not doing what everyone thinks we're doing, but we are doing something significant. We're saying your war on Christmas is stupid. Ours is great. Yeah, that's a really great way to put it. I was going to say, I think that a big part of the war on Christmas is Sarah Palin. Yeah, that's right. She wrote a book two years ago about right. how Christmas needed to be saved, which was which was a surprise to me, considering I had successfully celebrated Christmas every year of my life. I will say, give Sarah Palin credit for this, she has some pretty dope recipes in her book about saving Christmas. <laughs> Sarah Palin is just kind of a festive person who puts me in a merry mood. She's like an ornament come to life. Yeah, she's yeah. sparkly and great. The, the war on Christmas, the, the, the biggest skirmish earlier in the Christmas season was the Starbucks red cups. Well, it's funny how, like, Starbucks, for whatever reason, seems to come up often when we talk about this, the war on Christmas. Jason and I talked about how um, pumpkin spice lattes actually is an aggressive move made by people who actually want to celebrate fall instead of jumping into the Christmas season. The pumpkin spice latte moved from being just a drink that a few people like to a de facto holiday you're supposed to celebrate. <laughs> It was weird. But that's, that's like, pre-Thanksgiving. Yeah, that's something else. Starbucks finds itself at the center of a lot of these holiday discussions. Yeah. So this year, 
Starbucks, one of the things that Starbucks stands really look forward to is when they release the colored cups at Christmas. And most of the times they're red. And this year, it was it was really kind of weird. Like so many other things in the war on Christmas, no one notices the war is on until a few days later. Okay, Starbucks puts out a cup. Literally, it is just a red cup. And like normal human beings who went to Starbucks the first days of getting red cups acknowledged, oh, it's time for Starbucks holiday cups. Oh, look, it's red. That's cool. You know, it's really important to me. What's in this cup? What I'm going to drink? Pumpkin really, spice latte. Yeah, the cup. It's great. It's red. I now know <laughs> what day it is. Well, this is actually funny. I think that this particular aspect of the war on Christmas did kind of get blown out of proportion because of a there was that video that this like vlogger guy made where he was like filming himself ranting about why it doesn't have you know any Christmas symbols on the cup, and then people kind of ran with that and started blogging about it. Well, I like to bring it back to the Palins, but I hate to actually have to agree with one of them in a in a way, which was that Bristol Palin had a response saying that this was that the response to the Starbucks cup was manufactured by liberal media to make the war on Christmas look stupid. Ooh, clever. Yeah, clever. Can I say what I like about the the debate over the war on Christmas? Yeah. It's frequently about whether uh, a government or, or most frequently a private entity is sufficiently acknowledging Christmas, like in a store where you might be shopping for Christmas right. presents and the store puts up a sign that says season's greetings or whatever. When this whole idea of a commercial Christmas with an all-knowing Santa Claus, it, it, like he's such a false idol, it is so flies in the face of the of the teachings of Christ, <laughs> and, and people yeah. are mad that it's being you know this false idol is being insufficiently heralded by a commercial <laughs> enterprise. Uh, but but it's it's useful to remember that in in. Uh, the in the colonies, the the New England Puritans outlawed Christmas for basically this oh. reason, and there was an actual war on Christmas because it was too pagan. Yeah, because they because back then they they still knew that th- that these that getting drunk and partying around the solstice was a pagan tradition, and these and these were pagan tendencies gussied up to be Christian. So it was outlawed. It was actually illegal. I have an exciting new sort of origin story about the war on Christmas. Uh, this comes courtesy of Daniel Denver, uh, who who wrote this up for Politico and uh, came on HuffPost Live earlier this year to talk about it. And I'm going to just say up front, this is like trigger warning for people being the absolute worst. Henry Ford, the famous car maker, uh, in the 1920s, complained about the war on Christmas in a way that is traditionally traditionally associated with the way Fox News talks about it. Uh, in a in a in a in something some kind of pamphlet he wrote, he wrote, quote, last Christmas most people had a hard time finding Christmas cards that indicated in any way that Christmas commemorated someone's birth. That someone being Jesus Christ. Now that sounds like something that you'd hear mainstream haters of the war on Christmas talking about. But I assure you, this is going to accelerate quickly, very much unlike a Ford, in fact. <laughs> the next line is, people sometimes ask why 3 million Jews can control the affairs of 100 million Americans in the same way that 10 Jewish students can abolish the mention of Christmas and Easter out of schools containing 3,000 Christian pupils. And the, there you have it. There you have it. Henry Ford uh, was, a, was a gross anti-Semite. That ooh. is like... <laughs> But that is like one of the like tawdry origins of the war on Christmas. Henry Ford being essentially a gross anti-Semite. Well, it's the same complaint. It's a uh, small minority preventing everyone else from enjoying their Christmas. I also wanted to bring something up that I found online before the podcast, um, a Sarah Palin war on Christmas soundboard, which is already amazing. And it's on New York Magazine's uh, website. But... uh, Specifically, there's a soundbite that kind of reinforces the anti-Semitism a little bit that Ford was talking about, and I want to try to play it for you guys. All right, go for it. An angry atheist with a lawyer is one of the most powerful persons in America. Whoa! (laughs) An angry atheist with a lawyer is one of the most powerful persons in America. Now, the the 
<laughs> the, the atheists can be aggressors. There's a, an atheist billboard in North Carolina that said, if but, a picture but that doesn't of, stop people from celebrating Christmas. <laughs> well, it's a picture. It's a picture of Santa uh, smiling cheekily, and it says, "Go ahead and skip church this year." I oh my god! <laughs> the, the funny thing is, I think that's precisely the kind of thing that Sarah Palin reads as a power move. Is that what atheists really all they can do in this? country of ours is troll people the same way that a shopkeeper saying happy holidays instead of good luck with your christ worshiping activities i can't wait to see you in heaven clearly yours is the way to salvation and the rest of us should b- follow you uh the, the the lack of that kind of respect and validation sticks to people's crawl. but the uh the atheist billboard is self-defeating because they're already skipping church and you're just you're just pointing it out to Everyone who can see the billboard, no! Yeah. Hush, hush, Santa! One last thing I want to do, and I, um, I wanted uh, me and Kyla to recommend a movie to Arthur. Okay. So would you like to go first? Uh, yeah, I think my favorite Christmas movies are actually the non-Christmas Christmas movies. And then second would be, and this is something that Jason and I did discuss, is the Lifetime selection. Yeah. Oh, uh, tell me which Lifetime movie to watch. So there, the thing, the big theme about... Christmas Lifetime movies is that a a perfect, beautiful, single man needs to be somewhere in the vicinity of Christmas in order to save Christmas and or save a a woman who is probably close to 40 and would like to settle down. (laughs) I love that. You can watch almost any of them. Yeah, you can watch almost any of them and you'll get that storyline almost to a T. Sometimes it's a father figure. And sometimes it's like a friend, but it's usually a husband. And a lot of them have names like a father for Christmas, a Christmas wedding. Yeah. His All and I want Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> His and Christmas. That sounds then, like yeah. I'll, I'll uh, crack a bottle of white wine and I'll watch that. Yeah. The night. <laughs> I, was actually, I was reading about one today called The Flight Before Christmas that has Mayim Bialik in it with, you know, a, a perfect single man actor. And uh, apparently, you know, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a uh, planes, trains, and automobiles where they're forced, you know, to spend the holidays together in a B and B because of travel delays. And they just have the same conversation about six times in six different settings, according to this write up. And uh, it's just basically them both talking about their shared, you know, relationship problems until they fall in love. It's literally them kind of like playing Jenga with each other's hearts until the Jenga yeah. tower falls, <laughs> and they're in love with each other. Um, so yeah, that is in love. that is from uh, the uh, Janet Potter's write up is about this year's Lifetime Christmas movies in the all. I have to say that like the one Lifetime movie that always sticks out to me as being like maybe the coolest of all times because of all the things it combines is this one called On the Second Day of Christmas. The first thing it combines is an actress on her way out of popularity to obscurity, Mary Stuart Masterson, with an actor who hasn't yet become globally famous, Mark Ruffalo. And the whole crazy idea about this is that Mary Stuart Masterson and her niece are like thieves that are planning a heist uh, and they're like pickpocketing people. Um, but they kind of like fall in with Mark Ruffalo's upstanding character uh, and are stuck with him on the second day of Christmas. And he's just such a great guy that they fall in love. And I guess they turn away from their criminal enterprises or they turn toward better ones because Mark Ruffalo's clever. Uh, I don't know what happens to the niece. She maybe learns from this. I don't know. Sounds sounds very uh, Grinch. It's it's weird that the character is a niece and not a daughter. I think that people maybe Lifetime said, "No, nah, it can't be that dark." <laughs> like a man, <laughs> oh my god, a woman could drag her niece into a criminal enterprise, but never her daughter. I have a feeling that Lifetime. Like the people who write lifetime movies, like follow single men and women around and like <laughs> yeah. spy on them and like extract little bits of anecdote from their lives to create weird mm-hmm. movies that are always the same. That ring incredibly true. Right. And sometimes when you're really lucky, star Mark Ruffalo. Like, I right. Don't know. <laughs> the fact that Mark Ruffalo starred in a lifetime Christmas movie is proof enough that God exists. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry yes. Christmas, everyone. 
So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Adriana Ucero with Peter James Callahan, with technical assistance from Christine Canetta and spiritual guidance from Caitlin Boguki, who's an angel we have heard on high. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we are joined by Alexis Goldstein from the Americans for Financial Reform, my bestie, comedy writer and reporter Colin McGlynn, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter and Arthur Delaney. This podcast was sponsored by Texture, the app that brings magazines from the newsstands to your smartphone. We're also sponsored by Mile IQ, the mileage tracker app that's helping hundreds of thousands of working Americans save time and money. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, we thank you for listening and have a Merry Christmas. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.